I thought it was too early to take the company public. For me, it was the only solution that we had at that time because still the ecosystems wasn't really working. Our only option at that time to raise quite a lot of money was to take it public. Starting a company is easy. Selling your company, that's a different story. In the Big Exit Show by Peak, we lift the curtain of secrecy around selling businesses by speaking to ambitious and successful founders who have been on this roller coaster before. Our hosts, venture capital investor Johan von Mill and business journalist Remy Gieling. Yes, Johan, we're back once again at your home and we're sitting here in the rain. Well, we're inside, but outside it's raining. And our guest today is calling in all the way from Bali. So he's, yeah, he has the better end of the deal, I guess. I think he has, yeah. And it was, I think, a fabulous story. Stian Rusta, Norwegian entrepreneur. I met him uh, uh, a few years ago when I was speaking at a conference. and uh, uh, In Oslo? I, in Oslo, indeed. And I think he has a really fantastic story. I mean, he launched his company 25 years ago. The first SaaS ERP system in the world basically yeah, yeah indeed and he was the first one running on the cloud right that's yeah. really magnificent yeah. we had exact before which was also the first one in the cloud and now we have a second company which first ran on the on the cloud i don't think anyone has heard of the cloud no in, in those days yeah and i i had a company those days and it was really specific that you were running in the cloud because people companies didn't they didn't like it those days because it was all about data trust but also what's happening in on the web etc because everybody was hosting it on premise and he launched that company he took it also public those days, not to bring it public, as a lot of entrepreneurs aim to be, but just to raise money, because those days you didn't have a lot of there investors. Were no, there were no fees. VCs. Indeed. And that's a fantastic story. And then after a few years, a few years, he took it back from the stock market again. Yeah, he bought it back. He bought it back. And then he brought it back. He did an IPO market. again <laughs> to the stock market, in this case, of Sweden, because that market was way mature. Yeah. And I think this is, I think, a very good example of, let's say, a resiliency that the entrepreneur has, because he started the company 25 years ago and he's still running it. Yeah. He changed also the role, what he's typically good at. So staying an entrepreneur in your, in these days, listed company. And what I like is that he invests also, the, let's say, the uh, proceeds that he has gained with his companies in other companies. So he's also active as an angel investor. And by the way, what I found really, really interesting is that he also used that money to buy back his own company again. Yeah. Yes. So he told us in the podcast, you will hear it in a second, that he, he sold uh, a few of his shares in other companies to buy back Indeed. his own company and that's, on, from that, the stock market. And that's investors talk about recycling their money, and it means recycling your money as an entrepreneur, right? So that's a very good example, I think. And the last thing I really liked is that apparently we have to change the name of the show because he's really anti-exit, <laughs> he say. <Yeah. laughs> well, the, why, why would you ever want to exit your company? It's so fun. The big exit <laughs> show, the no exit show. Let's think about it. Awesome. I can't wait. Let's uh, start the show. So, Stian. What's the heroic story behind the uh, 24-7 office? Yeah, that was, um, that was a tough one, <laughs> starting right on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think the special thing about 24-7 office is that we're uh, the first cloud-based ERP system uh, in the world. So we started developing a web-based application long before it was any clouds. People didn't know the word SaaS. They didn't know we didn't have any clouds where you can, you know, get cloud services or whatever. So we had to program everything from scratch. We actually programmed it in line by line in Notepad, developing the first uh, the first system. So, so I think the real the special thing about our company is that we started so early before 
anyone even thought about internet as a perfect place for running applications. Hey, and what's the what's the real story behind twenty four seven office? Yeah, um, the real story is that it's uh, it's been a long journey. We're we're doing this for like twenty five years. Um, so you know, when I started, I knew that it would take a while for internet to be mature enough and the customers to really understand that this is the way to go. You know, we had you know several years uh, when the customers thought that internet uh, you know wasn't safe enough. Uh, they were afraid of their data, etc. So um, I think uh, the real story about 24-7 Office is that we were really, really too optimistic about how long time everything would take uh, for the technology to be mature enough, the the browsers to be mature enough, the customers to really uh, want uh, to work cloud-based and understand what cloud-based are. So when when I started, I thought it would take like five to to six uh, years maybe. But it actually took 10 years before the customers started to, you know, really evaluating a cloud-based system as as an alternative. And even much more time before they really started to to only want cloud-based systems. Uh, So so that surprised us. um, And it was heavy, as it was a heavy lifting. And especially because at that time, there were no ecosystem. Uh, for investments in Norway. Uh, there were hardly any IT investors. There were no seed funds. There were no VCs, kind of, focusing on, on internet and growth companies. Uh, so we had to do a lot of funding by taking different consultancy work, programs, special programs for other customers. We had uh, computer courses. We we had uh, you know we took care of servers for uh, on premise servers. So so you know it was a complete different environment to start a company back then than than it is now in in Norway. Uh, and another thing is that you know we didn't have any tools to to develop, so we had to develop everything from scratch. And now you have so much open source code. You have so much. Cloud-enabled software in the in the in the different uh, cloud services like Azure or Amazon. So yeah, that's it's been a long journey. The start. Take us back to the early days of twenty-four-seven Office for a second. You just mentioned what it was like building software, but where did you find the server space, and how did you find your clients, and how did you convince them as a very young gentleman? back then <laughs> to work with such a young company yeah so um since there were no clouds we had to develop our own clouds so i started uh, that was my second uh, startup i started a cloud company kind of a early version of uh, amazon uh, avs or or azure for microsoft so um, we 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 developed that and uh, and created our own cloud company that's also one of my exits. I sold it like six, seven years ago. Um, so that was uh, one of the issues that we had to solve. When that was sold, we, we of course, uh, had a lot of work to, uh, to do to program the first version to make it work. And I think we got our first customer in uh, 1999. I don't even remember who the first customer was. But from from then, you know, it was quite slow. It was a lot more like one customer, and then maybe a month after was another customer. 
I think it was as long as 10 years before the growth were really kind of picking up. Why, why did you go for the ERP software market? Because that's, I think, one of the hardest software uh, backbone systems you can build as an entrepreneur. <laughs> so why <laughs> did you decide this was the way to go? Yeah, that's uh, the, the, one of the reasons was that I had family members who run their own company. And I saw how hard it was to, to run those on-premise ERP system. You had to upgrade them. You had to renew your server park. Uh, you had to have a backup system. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, people always had problem with upgrading, doing um, uh, a real, you know, safe backup and even take the backup uh, to a third, you know, uh, location. Um, so I saw that it was really, really hard for them and it was expensive and it was also difficult to work from other places than at the office. So you always had to go to the office or to, to your factory or whatever to do your work. So I thought, you know, internet would solve all those problems. So that what motivated me to, to create that kind of system. And, and how did uh, your, let's say, your first clients respond to the idea to do it fully from the cloud, right? Because you were the first player. There was nothing on the cloud those days. What was, let's say, their feedback as a real innovators in this space? The, the, you know, the thing is that they loved the idea. And since we were uh, so early and everybody knew that they were early adapters, they were so forgiving for uh, any problems or bugs that we had. So the first customers that we had were actually very, very, very happy. And they were feeling that they were a part of a kind of a, a new innovation and development. They were doing something important kind of to, to help us develop this system. So uh, all the first customers, they stayed for a very long time. Uh, I see that we have still have customers that we had for, for over 20 years. There were also some concerns. I, I remember back in the day when uh, when the cloud was like getting more and more attention that these large corporations said, well, that's not safe and data, data and privacy issues and security issues. Did you get those questions as well? And how did you tackle them? Yeah, that was the tricky part. I think the most tricky part because people didn't really understand what internet was. And uh, they were, had all those concerns that you were mentioning. But the way that we put them is that we try to explain them that, you know, the way you have it today, that's the real security issue because you don't have any professional people watching over your firewall every day like we do and every night and every hour. And we all have all this. We always are upgraded. We are uh, always uh, paying attention to our systems. But for me, it would be very easy to hack into your system now because you're actually using email. So then your system is actually completely open to me. So if I wanted to, to shut your system down, we could do it. Uh, if you get virus, your entire network could be shut down. Uh, but with our system, uh, the chances of being hacked or shut down or whatever is actually much, much smaller. So, so I tried to convince them by convincing how uh, actually how vulnerable the system that they had on premise today was. And that worked. So then, then started. Then they started to think. Hmm. Hey, and then eight years later, you took the company public. Yeah. Can you take us back to that to that moment in time? Because as you uh, mentioned also before, right, the ecosystem was not very vibrant at that time. There were not a lot of VCs. There wasn't a lot of money. You fully bootstrapped, and still you were able to take your company public. 
How did you make the decision? And also, how did you, let's say, experience that uh, trajectory? The thing is that uh, when we took it public, uh, I thought it was too early to take the company public. So um, for me, it was just a solution that was uh, the only solution that we had at that time, because still the ecosystems wasn't really working. So if I was at that time running my company from the US, it wouldn't be any problem. And then we would find growth capital uh, and VCs and whatever. So our only option at that time to raise quite a lot of money was to take it uh, take it public. So we did that. And another thing is that we did that right before the financial markets crashed. And uh, the thing is that we worked every night and every day because we had this feeling that uh, the markets were very unstable and we were having you know um, friends that was watching the situation in the US etc so we were kind of tipped that we should get this company listed before before the summer as you remember the the market crashed in August so we were just in time to raise the money the first time and um, as I thought it was a little bit too early to take the the company public And with the financial crisis coming right after, it was a terrible kind of journey for the shareholders as well. But for me and the team, we believe that, you know, this is a perfect opportunity. So, so a few years later, we bought it back and took it off the, the Norwegian Stock Exchange. So you raised the capital with that to, to, let's say, to finance the growth of the company. So to be less dependent on the consultancy, etc. Yeah. But you mentioned also that, that shareholders were not really happy, probably because the stock price uh, went down. How did you, because I think also for a CEO, if you have a public company and also you're in those days pretty young still, how did you deal with that, let's say, situation also with being visible in the press as a listed company, shareholders? Uh, how did you deal with that? That was actually quite tough because, what, you know, when people put money into your company and then there's a, the biggest, largest financial crisis ever since the stock crash in 1929. So that was terrible, of course, uh, for the investors. And a lot of them were very stressed because uh, we had too many of investors that wasn't, you know, really professional. They had put too much on one stock and um, they were really dependent on this going well. So, so it, Put a lot of pressure on the management and the team, but we can't, you know, we can't do anything about the bear market, or the financial crisis, and the stock price. So it was quite tough, actually, and it was tough to see uh, all the shareholders were uh, very frustrated at that time. Uh, it took a lot. That took a lot of focus and energy, I would say. So uh, I would rather be without that situation. Was that also the reason you took it? private again you know even with elon musk these days there's a lot of talk about entrepreneurs bringing company public and then just hating it yeah yeah so that, that's of course it's a lot of overhead to, to have a listed company and we were quite small uh, organization we're still quite small organization at that time so you know we spent a lot of time and energy and and we we didn't see uh, any you know future for the stock uh, in Norway either because we, we didn't have enough IT investors still at that time. That's totally changed uh, now. But uh, for us, it was uh, just uh, a distraction to be on the stock exchange. And of course, uh, the, the, we felt that the stock price was very low at that time compared to the underlying values. So we thought it was a good uh, deal to take it off the stock exchange. And how do you finance that then? Yeah, so we bought uh, quite a lot of uh, stocks because I did other exits. Uh, mm -hmm. So I've been working uh, as an angel investor for at least 20 years. Uh, 
So uh, I had a few exits. I was able to buy uh, a great deal of the stocks. Um, but we also managed to get all agree, all shareholders, because we didn't have that many. I think we had like 200 shareholders or something at that time. So we managed to get all of them agree to say that we delist the company. And I think we managed to get uh, at least 99% something, 99.5% of the of the capital wanted to delist it. And then we were allowed to delist it uh, by the stock exchange. So mm-hmm. it was a, oh, those wow. two in combination. Yeah, And that's great that you can uh, use your, let's say, your angel investment returns on buying back your own company, right, from from the listing. Yeah, that was, uh, that was very fortunate. <laughs> yeah. So you are... It's a small company in size of employees, I think, for the market you're in. I think there are, there are like uh, 200 plus employees yeah. somewhere in that space. 200, yeah. I would guess we're around 210 employees now. Yeah. So how do you compete against like the big giants like uh, SAP, for example, who have thousands and thousands of people working there? Yeah, that's a, quite interesting because we compete with a lot of big players like Microsoft and SAP and NetSuite. Uh, and Wisma is quite big, you know, in the, the Nordic player. Uh, and we beat them uh, a lot of the times when we compete. So as long as we can get into the negotiation table with the customer, we win quite a lot of uh, the percentage of our, our, the cases. And the reason for that is a combination that we have been doing this for a very long time. So, of course, we have developed uh, a very stable, scalable uh, solution. Spent a lot of time to to make it uh, super scalable, fast, uh, redundant, and uh, uh, remove bugs, etc. And there's also a lot of customers who like that we are smaller and we can give them more attention. Uh, they feel like they can, you know, even call me or the CEO or whatever if there's a if there's a major problem. But if you try to do the same with SAP, that wouldn't be possible. So if there's something really wrong, you will just have to sit sit there like doing nothing. So there's a lot of different drivers that you know makes us close the deal. But I think those are the most two most important things. Yeah, and I can underpin this because uh, I met Stian one time before in Oslo, and we were uh, drinking a beer in the evening and at a bar. And really, he ran into a client he just met, etc. Right? You had some questions, so, so I think you're really, I think the prototype of a founder who's really involved in the company, right? And especially in the space. Hey, and, and comparing twenty four seven office to let's say the other players, what is your let's say your ICP? What's your uh, typical client, which I think you, which you think has to choose for twenty four seven office compared to let's say the offer the other uh, uh, parties which are in the market. Yeah, so uh, I think we're perfect when you typically grow out of the the small, you know, micro-based ERP system. Typically, when you have like 10, 15 users, you need uh, different user rights. You, de- you, you need more complex, uh, maybe um, a, a group of companies and you have to have group accountings, etc. So when, when you grow out of the small ones and up to like a, a few hundred uh, employees... So in the early days, as a SaaS company, you often do the sales yourself as a founder or as a founding team. You, you onboard clients yourself, you talk to them. But at one point, you need to find new ways to scale up the marketing and, uh, and sales efforts yeah. to find more clients. Otherwise, you can never reach the 20,000 client yeah, mark. Yeah. So what, what were some of the best practices in finding the clients and scaling up 
the marketing and sales efforts. That it was not not just you selling it, but that you could like onboard many clients a week. Yeah, and that's that's a really you know that's a tricky, it's a very you know tough period when you try to uh, hire new people, and some of them might not work. Uh, you know, and you have to have. Uh, you don't really have the money to scale up the organization and marketing as much as you want. You maybe hire a few salespeople, but you don't, don't really have enough money to do the marketing enough to fill fill up their pipeline, etc. So, so that's a, that's a really really tough period. Uh, which as a serial entrepreneur, I've seen that so many times, and also as a as a startup investor. Um, so, so that was the toughest period, but somehow we managed to to combine it. We we found some really good salespeople, so we were kind of lucky as well uh, to find the right people. So, uh, a combination of finding uh, really good people, where we also could, uh, we had this opportunity to give them shares. So that that's why we probably had better people working for us than the paycheck would you know um, uh, let us normally have. And I can imagine that, especially if you want to sell an ERP solution to an entrepreneur, because typically the founder is still in the control of the companies where you sell your product to, then of course the personal relationship is really important, right? So there's a lot yeah. of manual sales, there's a lot about salespeople, right? And and finding the right talent to convince customers and to help them onboard your 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 solution uh, successfully, right? That's right. So it's it's super important with the competent uh, people, um, and they have to be. Uh, you know, more complex solution-based sell uh, salespeople. You cannot just hire you know people that are that good at selling, you know, smaller, simpler things. Mm. Um, and you also had to find um, uh, always consultants who could you know implement the system. At, and that was also hard to you know train consultants, find the right level of uh, amount of marketing, and hire enough salespeople. And I think we were struggling about this balance for you know. Uh, all the way until like five, six, seven years ago. Then we became so big that you know we can always hire more people than we we actually needed uh, at that particular time. Yeah, because because if I go back to the moment then you that you took twenty four seven office off the stock market and, and took it private again, two thousand thirteen. You've been running the company then for six years. What happens in the years after, right? Because at a certain moment, you took it, of course, public again. But can you take us back, let's say, to those years when you took it private again and didn't have the burden of uh, being a listed company and also taking more control also then? And what happened then in those years? Yeah, that was a really good period uh, because we could focus all our energy that we spent on shareholders and compliance, etc. And all the money for auditing and compliance, uh, we could spend that on more marketing and more sales and, and focus on creating uh, good software. Uh, so we did a lot of stuff then and we had uh, a quite amazing growth in that period. And for like five years ago, I decided to uh, quit as a CEO and move to the US. Uh, and at that time, the company was like growing 40% year over year. And I thought, now it's time to see if we can make it in the US. So, so I moved to US with my family. And I was there for like three years. It was super interesting. Uh, There's a lot of, you know, uh, I could probably talk for hours about the adventure in, in the US. <laughs> Uh, but now I can jump right to the to the um, conclusion that it was a success. So, so now the U.S. operation 
is quite you know uh, strong. It's uh, it's almost twenty people, and it's growing uh, almost hundred percent year over year, while the total company is growing thirty five percent. So we're growing for smaller numbers, so of course, still, but uh, it's really it's really picking up and becoming uh, probably uh, our most important growth engine uh, within uh, a year or two. Hey, and you decided at a certain point to, let's say, to take that international role and to have a CEO running the company. What made you decide to to do that? It was several reasons. Uh, one of the main reasons was that I thought that I was the best person to actually be able to pull it off to launch it in the US. Since I know so much, I'm, I'm still a lot in the details. I know the software the capabilities are still capable of selling it, doing this, uh, the support, whatever. So I thought that I was the only one who can kind of run the project to uh, make it compliant with the U.S. regulations and still hire the team, uh, start the marketing, uh, get the first customers on board, the first partners, etc. So, so it's, I thought I was the at least the, the best person to do that. And it was also because I thought it was, you know, the company was quite, you know, going quite well. It was well run. Uh, so I thought it was a little bit boring, to be honest. So I wanted to do something really challenging again. And nothing is more uh, challenging than starting in, in the competitive market of, of uh, the U.S. <laughs> I like it that you, you keep your entrepreneurial role right that way. As a part of a, let's say, listed company now, of course, again, but it's th- still entrepreneurial in a new market, right? I like that you, how you, how you build that roles for yourself. The exit. So back to the exit, because mm-hmm. at one point you took the company private in 2013, but you took it public again, didn't you? Yeah, we did. Because after a while we saw that was a really booming market on tech and SaaS companies. And we saw that especially in Sweden, there was a very, very good, you know, investor environment around uh, cloud and SaaS and IT. So uh, the climate was very good to list the company again. So, so that's what we did. Uh, and that was a much more successful listing. So so what happened is that we listed at $35 million pricing and uh, we went up uh, all the way on the top before the last recession again we were at 350 million dollars valuation so that that was a that was a much more successful and we raised money almost on the on the top as well so we have a lot of money now uh, to do acquisition and that's a perfect timing when you have a lot of cash uh, in a in a bear market where a lot of companies uh, like ourselves has dropped like 70% again so we're quite active on acquisitions now what are you looking to to buy in the market for acquisitions? What are what is the interest? Uh, what is your interest? So we we've been focusing a lot on buying technology and functionality that we don't have ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like uh, one example uh, is our latest acquisition is a HRM system because we didn't have a HRM module uh, in twenty four seven office, and we found this Danish company that has been working with HRM software for twenty years. So it was amazing software, had uh, so much functionality, but they were not that successful in their sales and marketing. Uh, so we, we were able to buy them and they were happy. And now we're implementing into our software and we'll give uh, an amazing HRM system to all our customers. So, th- so that's a typical acquisition that we do. We have done several 
acquisitions like that. And I think it's also a, a big advantage that you have as a listed company, right? So it's easy to buy companies because of your stock price, but also the way that you can also can, let's say, list more shares and also can do a deal in, in shares, right? That's also, I think, a big advantage that you have. Yeah, but it, it, that was a bigger advantage when we, uh, our stock price was higher. So now I think yeah. we are underpriced. <laughs> but the good yeah. things now is that we have cash. So we have plenty of cash. So now we do all our acquisition in cash. But mm, yeah. when and the stock price will go back, and I say when because it will, um, mm-hmm. then we, of course we can start uh, uh, doing acquisition with shares again. But now we're focusing on the cash deals. Um you make it sound so easy, you know, taking your company public and taking it private again, and we're going public again. What, what kind of entrepreneurs who are building software companies should think about this way of fundraising, you reckon? Um, I think to take the company public, is, I would say that you should be very careful before you do that. You have to think about that twice. So you have to have the right growth, the right size, the right team. Uh, so it's really important to, to be kind of listing ready. Uh, so I would advise uh, entrepreneurs to try to find other ways to finance their company uh, until they're uh, on that right level, based on my own experience. Uh, as I told you earlier, that it's quite hard to be too early on a stock exchange. And what is the right moment, do you think, uh, to take it public in terms of, let's say, people, growth and size, what you mentioned? I think it should be at least like maybe around, I would say 100, my my gut feeling is like minimum 100 people. So you have a team and a middle management, you have a good uh, CFO and you have all the routines in place and you have enough people to, to, to offload the burden so you don't have to do focus on everything yourself as a, as a founder or CEO. And, and in terms of revenue and growth, what do you see as, uh, because you're probably, I, I mean, you've done it twice, so you looked in it, into it, but are roughly, let's say, the benchmarks there? Yeah, I, I would I would take a company growing less than 20% on the stock exchange because then mm-hmm. you'll probably fail, uh, both in the process uh, or at least afterwards. So I would say around 30% growth. And mm-hmm. if you have a stable team and a, a critical mass on your team, and if you're not losing too much money, then the best thing, of course, would be if you, if you do not lose money, it's smart to mm-hmm. grow faster and lose a little bit more money. That's my opinion, because what you get paid for is your actual uh, uh, recurring revenue that you have at the end when you sell it. So it's, it's better to grow faster. But mm-hmm. still, the, the stock markets, at least in, in, in Norix, they don't appreciate companies losing too much money because they probably don't understand all the de- dynamics around a uh, cloud-based or recurring revenue-based company. Yeah, and in this light, did, did you ever consider also taking your company public to, let's say, the US stock market, for, for example, the NASDAQ? Yeah, you know, we thought about the NASDAQ, but in the Sweden version of the NASDAQ, because they have, uh, they bought a stock in, uh, stock exchange in Sweden. So that's one of, we, we evaluated that one, but we thought it was a little bit too early, but that could, that might be a next step to, to move to another list, uh, which we mm-hmm. co- continuously, you know, evaluate. But to take it on NASDAQ, uh, we're still a little bit too small. We have to be quite a lot bigger. But if you do, uh, if you continue, like the last year, we grow 35%. And if we continue to grow 35% and do some acquisition, we, you know, we might be there within a few years. So, hmm. What's your ambition for the future? What, what do you hope in client size? Or do you, do you want to expand 
more in, in more clients or in more revenue per client? What, what's your ambition? Yeah, so we, we do both. Uh, so now we are at the, the position that we have so many customers. So when we, we, when we launch new modules, we can do upsells of the of different modules. So like we, we launched a new payroll system. We didn't have a payroll system uh, before. We launched that, you know, just a few, like six months ago or something. And now we already have more than 2,500 companies using that, you know, and with several thousands, thousands of thousands of uh, employees, of course, uh, using that payroll system. So, so we, do, we do that. We'll, like the HRM, we will soon launch that as an integrated module in our system. So, so we do upsell. And of course, we, we just grow organically to get new clients. And we, we, of course, we grow when we do acquisition as well because they have revenue. But another thing that we focus a lot on is to go towards larger, even larger and larger customers. So we have, you know, quite, you know, some really, really big customers on our system. Like Scania is using them to run all our projects. Uh, we have PwC as a customer. Um, we have Uda. So, so yeah, we have, you know, s- always getting bigger and bigger customers. And that's, that's really what we think will be an important, you know, growth factor for us going forward. Good to hear. Good to hear. I think we were getting a little bit to the end now also. What is your advice for entrepreneurs who are thinking about selling their company in the near future? You've done it a few times, brought your company to an IPO, got some investors in, took it back again, etc. But what would be your biggest advice for entrepreneurs who think about that? Um, I think my biggest advice uh, would be not to sell the company. Continue and uh, have fun, build something, just build something greater. I think a lot of uh, entrepreneurs that I talk to actually re- regret that they sold their company. They get bored. So I think that would be my number one advice. Be really sure that you want to sell your company. And of we course... Should, we should change the title to the No Big Exit no Show. No Big Exit Show. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, please continue. <laughs> yeah. So, But the other more uh, serious advice, if you really want to sell it, uh, is of course, mm-hmm. uh, make sure that you have good advisors. There's such a big difference between uh, good and bad advisors. And take your time, plan it. And that goes whether you want to take it on the stock exchange or sell the company. Because I also also sold other companies uh, in my uh, portfolio. So I've, mm-hmm. I've been through it all. Uh, so, so make sure that you find good advisors. Take your time. Try to find as many potential buyers as possible. And the same goes if you want to, to take a list the company, take your time to find the right anchor investors. Because it, it takes time. And if you just take the, the, the first investors that you, that, that you find, that will probably not be a good idea because they might just sell the shares again right after the exit. Mm-hmm. So, or after yeah. the listing, sorry. Yeah, we, we, we see it a lot. It's funny that you say it, yeah, because we see it a lot that indeed entrepreneurs, the first uh, advice that you gave, is entrepreneurs starting, sorry, selling their company and then afterwards they really get bored and just start the same company more or less uh, again, right? That's <laughs> that's what we see one. And secondly, indeed, we also had on the show, I think a few times also entrepreneurs mentioning that there was one bit which was really too fantastic. And in that case, you also say, right, hire advisors to find more potential buyers to see if that's the right price, right? Mm. That's really important. So that's number yeah. one mistake I've seen that they they just talk to one potential buyer that contacted them mm-hmm. instead of you know mm-hmm. planning it ahead and really trying to find several buyers. That's a very typical thing. And they think they get a very good bed, a good price, but they're actually not. <laughs> yeah, they don't they don't know the right price, right? Uh, so if you think about um, selling your company, you ask it's good to involve advisors. There are all 
different kind of advisors, right? You have, let's say, lawyers, you have accountants, you have investment bankers, you have also the big five companies helping with that, but also the small boutique agencies. What are typically the advisors that you have good experience with hiring for such a process? Yeah, so so for me, I've I've used uh, all kind of different. I've used uh, you know the big uh, um, corporate houses uh, for twenty four seven office because we're big enough to actually get attention from them. But if you have a smaller company, you wouldn't be able to get attention from them. So then you have to find more boutique uh, um, kind of players. So it, it really depends on the price, uh, the size of the deal, and the size of the company, etc. So, um, but when it comes to the smaller players, it's so difficult if you don't know them if you don't know their reputation to choose the right one so you should spend time on you know really talking to people in in that business to find the ones that are really good because there's a lot of people just like uh, they they seem good but they're not they're really not good so so that's the problem that you never you know you you don't ha- you don't know that kind of uh, business as an entrepreneur and then you're trying to find them and you really don't know the quality. It's easier when you yeah. are at my size because then you really know who's good and not because you have the big big players. Yeah, and also, I mean, as an entrepreneur, you, you probably, and you're in a u- unique uh, position that you did it a few times already, but probably you don't uh, sell your company every day, right? So you don't have a lot of experience with it. So it's good to work indeed with experienced partners also on that end. Yeah. Stian, thank you so much for your time and insights in this podcast indeed. today. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, always fun to talk about uh, 24-7 Office. That's what I love to talk about. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Big Exit Show by Peak. We hope you enjoyed today's program. If so, please subscribe to our show on Spotify or on your podcast platform of choice. If you have feedback, let us know. Send us a message to podcast at peak.capital. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you join us for the next episode. See you soon.